Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Arwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 108. Back to lecturing. How might his young apprentices defend themselves against such a dastardly assault as that showcased in his recent experiment, assuming some more refined version of that experiment which would actually work? Think what price would strike you as fair for each item separately rather than comparing them. Except I did try to do that. And what did results you get? Uh, mostly it's hard to think what price would seem fair without seeing the actual book. Standard technique when you're interrogating yourself about something is to make up average-sounding details any time your internal query blocks on a lack of detail. It's not like you'd be committing to buying the actual item, sight unseen. It would have taken me a lot longer to figure out my sexuality after getting to Galarian, if considering questions like, am I okay renting Carissa to the Queen? I had been, oh, but I know so little at this point about what the Queen is like, or what will happen to Carissa, and let that stop me there. Instead, I filled in all unknown details with conditions that felt relatively friendly to my sexuality, to check if there were any possible conditions I was okay with at all. I'll actually go ahead and tell everyone to try putting prices on both items they considered. Now, and any time your brain says, I don't know, you just fill in something plausible and keep going until it produces a price. Sure, they'll try that and mostly end up valuing all the books between one and three gold with some individual differences. One book costs upwards of half a day's wages for a very well-paid second circle wizard. Right then. I need to check your book manufacturing technology at some point, and see if the bottleneck is printing or papermaking or human labor to operate the machines, or if there's some downstream distribution issue or what, because that is not a sustainable book, price for a civilization that's trying to own a reasonable number of books. Anyways, the reasons I wouldn't expect that particular attack angle to work on me if I thought anything more careful than a pure snap decision is, second of all, that I'm explicitly aware of contrasts between easily commensurable quantities and how those can distort my cognition by calling attention to themselves. First, that I'm constantly putting a quantity on how much I want things. In civilization, I could easily have translated that quantity to unskilled labor hours or, closer to myself, the minutes or hours of my time that I'd spend to get something, including by working to buy it, if it was something that could be bought directly with money. The fact that I don't actually have a bank account full of unskilled labor hours anymore, and instead own a completely unfamiliar valuable called gold pieces, is contributing to a constant state of disorientation in the back of my mind. I'll seem less timid and hesitant once I actually know how much everything around me costs, and this core process of all of my cognition is able to actually run again. Your next question is why my salary of 500 gold pieces per week doesn't establish a value for my time of 71 gold pieces per day, because that's a trivial side payment compared to the expected worth of my future share of project income, is why, more or less. I could spend a day describing the reasons for the project's exact contract structure to the Church of Asmodeus, which is something I've now been requested to do at some point, and earn 2,000 gold that way. I'm not running off to do it because it's obvious that a one-day delay in Cheliax achieving a larger economy costs much more than 2,000 gold. 
If at any point I found myself even considering spending a week of my time to avoid spending five hundred gold pieces on something, it would be obvious that I needed a higher salary. What with, for example, all the security wizards here also costing five hundred gold a week each. So, how much is my time actually worth in gold pieces? What are gold pieces worth to me in terms of anything else I want? I have no idea. Thankfully, there's a pre-trained reflex and habit in my brain that already knows how to assign quantities to anything it wants, and it can go on assigning those quantities even though they're currently meaningless to me in terms of money, and so I can go on pretending to be a functional human being. Wizards usually want a lot of money so they can have more expensive headbands, says Tanya. But I'm actually not sure what other people want money for, past the amount of rich that we are, such that they could think about things in terms of money. You just got a lot richer. It would not be terribly surprising if whatever skills you do have for figuring out how much you want things, measured in gold pieces, also spend the next several weeks going haywire. Being tossed from Ostenso Wizard Academy into Project Lawful is not that unlike going from Dath Elan to Galarian in terms of how much financial disorientation I'd expect that to produce. As an interim measure, consider asking yourself how much you value things in terms of time. How much of your limited personal time per day you'd spend to get various things that you want, until money starts making sense to you again. Tanya nods seriously. If at some point Keltham ends up busy on contract work again, and they don't want to just take that time off, the class might consider a collective project to probe variations on what Keltham tried, to see if they can hone some version of that. Maybe not involving books about magic, it might have to be something more common. Into a form that reliably produces incoherent preferences in Galarionites. Obvious locally available test subjects, the four departed ostensos, securities, cooks, and other local support personnel. Then they get to be like little tiny keepers relative to the rest of Galarian, having refined for themselves a piece of knowledge that they can use to make other people's brains produce financial errors. Further exercise, come up with your own list of ethical restrictions about how this very, very, very mildly terrifying knowledge should be used by project students. Is that an actual assignment or was he joking? Gregoria asks after a little while. He's not sure assignment is translating correctly to concepts he already has. It's a way where somebody on this project with excess time that they want to convert into practice at this sort of thing could, at their own option, choose to do that. And if so, all of the people doing that should coordinate among themselves so that they don't trip over each other in using up their limited supply of local experimental subjects. Okay, it sounds fun. She might try it. Great. Just don't use your dangerous and powerful knowledge for purposes that Asmodeus would disapprove, or Pilar and Meritzel will suddenly be standing next to you one day looking sad. She promises only Asmodeus-approved uses of whatever she figures out. Anyways, in terms of law, this whole lecture has now gotten far ahead of itself. The true law does not assume that there is some mystical stuff called money floating around, in which everything can already be valued. The law begins from people wanting things. A notion of money comes later, beneath the law and after the law, not before it and above it. Going back to where they left off on law. This classroom has now seen, at this point, that things you want, which by an act of choice or expenditure of time you can swap or trade, need to be consistently orderable among themselves in order to avoid having time or money pumped out of you. Even indifferences, 
in the sense of letting other people swap things for you, not just it not being worth the effort of making a trade, must be coherent within the ordering, to avoid this. They've seen a simple trick for getting Dath Ilani children or Galarian adults to violate this consistent ordering, just by way of showing that it's not a trivial requirement, and hinting at how there must be vastly more terrifying things that high-ranking keepers can do if not otherwise restrained by ethics, but that's not the main point. To take the next step beyond ordering, consider things that are divisible, fungible, things that have quantities over them, and not just unique individual identities. Let's consider apples, bananas, cherries, and suppose, temporarily, that the relative intensity of your desire for these fruits does not change depending on how many you already have. Maybe you're planning to feed those fruits to a large, hungry crowd, so you actually care more about food energy value than a tasty meal with variety, say. Suppose, for now, that every fruit is identical to every other fruit of that kind. Suppose also that you would, for each of these kinds of fruits, prefer to have more rather than less, everything else be equal. It'd be pretty odd if you valued a cherry equally with a whole banana. It should take at least two cherries to be worth a banana, right? Probably more. If somebody offers to trade you a banana for two cherries, you should probably accept. But that's not law. There could be such a thing as a person who would rather have one cherry than two bananas. What can we say in this situation about the patterns of offered trades that you will accept or reject? What property must your trading rule have to avoid some dreadful thing happening to you? And what indeed is that misfortune? The class is going to need a moment, because they're distracted realizing what Asmodean keepers will be capable of doing to people. Yes, yes, this is great news. Dis has priced us all correctly. Now answer the question. You need to have the same relative valuing of fruits, Tanya says, no matter what exact bargain is offered. Otherwise, you'll agree to trades that leave you worse off than you started. Hmm, HM, say more about this relative ordering concept. What is it to have the same relative valuing of fruits? Uh, the amount you'd rather have a cherry than a banana can't change with which is being offered, or how many are being offered. What does the amount you'd rather have a cherry than a banana look like? 92.73 units of wantingness? The amount of cherries that's as good as one banana? And so long as you keep to constant exchange rates for apples with bananas, bananas with cherries, and apples with cherries, so long as those three numbers never change, whatever they are, you are safe, are you? Probably not, but I can't think what'd go wrong. Two apples for one banana, two bananas for one cherry, two cherries for one apple. That does sound like a problematic trading pattern. What must be true for that to not happen? The constraint system needs fewer degrees of freedom, one fewer than the number of goods being traded. If there's three goods you can trade, there should only be two trading ratios. Once you know apples to bananas and bananas to cherries, that gives you apples to cherries. So if you make up a separate number there that isn't derived from the first two, that's like having two different trading ratios at two different times, or different trading ratios depending on the order you trade things in. The constraint system starts with zero degrees of freedom for one fruit. And then any time you add a new fruit, you add one degree of freedom for a trading ratio between that fruit and any other fruit already in the constraint system. Keltham reminds himself once again that these people are not actually six-year-olds. They have any prior mathematics education. It's just been about spell forms rather than the entire rest of reality. Ah, uh, well, in that case, 
I claim that your condition is exactly equivalent to saying that every fruit in the system other than cherries must have a consistent, unchanging price in cherries, and we accept trades whenever the trades are favorable according to those prices, and reject them otherwise. Do you believe me? Yes. He was expecting a bit more caution there. Why? Because your bluff sucks. You seem like a very honest and nice boy who wouldn't lie to an innocent girl about that sort of thing, says Alter Peranza. Also because any pattern of trading rules that's okay will have some series of trades you can make. To convert one of any other fruit to some number of cherries, and that series of trades gives you the price of that fruit in cherries. And if you have the price of everything in cherries, you can figure out which trades are okay. You just compare the value in cherries to see if you're gaining cherries or losing them. Hmm. That is a compelling argument. The second part, I mean. I'm not commenting on that first argument at all. But you may recall that I asked, initially, what pattern the system of trading rules must have, to avoid some dreadful thing happening. And also I asked, what exactly is this terrible misfortune? What happens to you if the ratios aren't consistent? No matter what fruit you start with, somebody can offer you a series of trades that takes you down to one cherry, then more trades to half a cherry, if they still think you've got too much left. It seems you trusted that nice boy far too much. Suppose I'll trade 11 cherries for a banana, or a banana for 14 cherries, but when it comes to trading a banana for 12 or 13 cherries, I neither accept or reject either of those offers. You can't pump infinite fruit out of me that way, even if I trade by those rules consistently, and the rules don't correspond to having any single price of a banana in cherries. Nope. You weren't lying before. Now you're trying to get me to think you were lying before. Though I'm not sure how. Don't get so caught up in the metagame that you forget about the object-level math question, which is where all of the important skills to learn here are to be found. When you are encountering your own problems, you will not be able to solve them by guessing a teacher's trolling patterns. It sounds enough like a rebuke that Peranza loses the thread of Alter Peranza just being in class and being good at math. Peranza has practice at spellcraft under pressure, answering from memory under pressure, a little doing topology under pressure. Not so much pretending to be another person thinking about law the way Keltham does, under pressure. Which is not a good look for Cheliax. Having one less degree of freedom than the number of fruits, with each new fruit after the first having one degree of freedom for entering the constraint system, is definitely equivalent to being able to price all the other fruits in one fruit, but that's not the same condition as trading rules that can't get traded down to one cherry. What's missing, I think, is... If somebody else offers you to trade a banana for 13 cherries, and then to trade 12 of your cherries for a banana, you have to take them up on that. If you don't, that counts as a terrible misfortune. I claim that the two conditions of you can't be traded down and you don't miss trades that take you up is equivalent to being able to price everything in cherries, assuming there are any cherries in the system in the first place. Correct, but Tier 2S speak first, Ioni. Right, sorry. They'll need to get either Gregoria or Pilar to take over Ioni's current silence-covering duties via Tier 1 prompting. Alter Cheliax does not have or need a silence-covering duty, and that is the part that needs to get conformed to ASAP. Gregoria is trying, but she doesn't actually think as fast as Ioni, and if she did, she'd be Tier 1 herself. No prompting right now. If you don't have an answer, ask a question, Gregoria. 
Suppose now that some troll were further to say, maybe you can't trade fractions of fruit, only whole ones, because if you try to slice a banana in half, the parts exposed to the air will start rotting. And furthermore, you can't express arbitrary ratios using very large numbers of fruit, because you've only got 100 of them. I'll trade 9 bananas for 99 cherries. Or trade 98 cherries for 9 bananas. What's my real ratio of bananas to cherries? It could be a little less than 11 cherries per banana, or a little more than 10.8 repeating cherries per banana, or anywhere in the infinite space between. Maybe you think you could try to pin that down by looking at the other trades I'll make with bananas for other things that can be traded for cherries. But if anything, I'd guess that the additional trading steps will just put even wider bounds on all the numbers you try to derive that way. So now you can't deduce any exact ratios from my trading patterns. And why, it's not that I'm hiding those exact ratios. It's that I don't have any, just some trading rules I use. So now the two ideas aren't equivalent anymore. I have a trading pattern where I don't accept strict losses and don't pass up strict gains, but I have no exact ratios between items. I can make up a ratio and assign it to you and you won't have any grounds on which to contradict me, says Peranza. Doesn't stay disintegrated under pressure, rallies and returns given a chance to catch her breath, because she is still a survivor out of the Ostenso Wizard Academy, and all the really pathetic students there are now laundry wizards in a tiny town somewhere, paying back loans that will last forever. What if I look at your ratio and shake my head and say that your ratio seems to me to be not quite right? Is this not a grounds for contradiction? Then you obviously know what your real ratio is and you're trying to hide it from me, in which case, once again, you in fact have a ratio. Pretty adversarial attitude towards mathematics. Keltham doesn't mind. He's masculine gender troped. Doesn't quite follow that I know my ratio and am hiding it. You can know an answer is wrong without knowing the right answer, and this is in general a very important fact about how to think in law-inspired ways. Your sense that an answer is wrong often precedes your having any idea what the right answer is, and sometimes for quite a while. But yes, in general, that's the idea I was aiming towards. If we can't have fractions of fruit or unbounded fruit, then the two equivalent conditions are there's at least one possible set of prices in cherries you could be using based on your behaviors, and you don't accept trade patterns that lead to strict losses or reject patterns that lead to strict gains. Where a strict loss is having less fruit in one place without having gained any fruit somewhere else, and a strict gain is having more of one kind of fruit without having lost any others. This, you might say, is how the notion of money as a common unit arises under the law when mortals meet and deal with each other. The world begins with farms and scythe makers. Keltham has picked up that scythes are involved in farming. So why does it need money? Let farmers barter corn for scythes. Let scythe makers eat some of the corn and barter other corn for metal. Let the metal maker barter metal for shoes. Don't tell me that's not the right trade pattern, Tonya. Just pretend I said something sensible. Please. Why not just trade things you have for other things you want? Why try to price everything in the same units everywhere? Who's to say that wouldn't just cause everyone to make weird trades they wouldn't have made, would have been wiser than to make, if bartering things directly? But if people are in general trading in ways that don't let you extract lots of resources from them, they will be acting as if you could price everything in corn, or everything in pounds of iron, and have their trading patterns mostly make sense in those terms. 
you won't be eliminating a lot of useful complexity and extra details that mattered, when instead of having all the local patterns of bartering ratios, you instead try to price everything in corn. You are not holding up a mirror to life and cutting off the pieces of life that don't fit. Everything does fit into the mirror. It's safe to do the thing that lets somebody work out instantly the ratio between shoes and scythes, without having to envision in detail how relatively useful shoes and scythes will be to them. That's what justifies, you might say, the approach of trying to weigh a book about rare magic items and a book about spell design relative to one another by weighing both of them in some common unit and not just comparing them to each other. Should that common unit be gold pieces or minutes of our time? The minutes of our time are, from one perspective, the most natural way to think about the resources that we have. Almost anything else we want that we can try to get is going to burn some number of minutes of our time, and maybe some other resources too, but always the minutes. As for money, you can always convert your time into that. Even if your job saturates in a way that doesn't let you voluntarily work an extra hour or an extra day, you could trade your time for money elsewhere by finding an employer who just needs an hour of work from somebody, even if that pays less well. Actually, now that I'm arguing this out loud, I have a sudden worrying sensation that in Galarian, it's not actually going to be possible for lots of people to trade their time into money at any reasonable exchange rate. Anyways, in civilization, where you can convert between time and money, the common wisdom is that you should learn to value everything in terms of money rather than minutes of your personal time. Why? Because that way you can, without an extra mental translation step, tell other people your prices and understand what their prices are. Time is the personal resource closest to us, but society's shared unit of wantingness is the way we interact with everything else. And so the common wisdom is that we'll all end up better off if we think in society's units. Of which it is said, in Dathilan, money is the unit of caring. With further implications, such as, for example, that if you're weirdly reluctant to spend any money on something, you probably don't care about that thing very much. Though the proverb loses something because civilization's word for society's common unit for pricing, unit of account, is one of three different baseline words I've found so far that all translate into Taldane's word, money. You can mostly trade your time into money in Cheliax, says Gregoria. I don't know about other places. I think you mostly can other places unless they have some specific thing going on, like not letting women work outside their homes. And the proverb just translates and makes sense, I think. If you don't want something enough to pay for it, you don't want it much. In civilization, the common unit is the unskilled labor hour, which is, ideally, adjusted at a pace that changes smoothly over time, but ends up tracking the value of an average person spending an hour of their time doing something they have no special training or talent for. Everybody has that to trade, even if almost nobody should actually trade it, and enough people need it now and then that the market exists. There's a debate about whether that unit is actually a good idea, because from one perspective, the value of that unit tends to predictably go up over time. As technology improves and society gets more productive, the minimum amount you have to pay anybody to work for an hour goes up, in terms of most other goods, which is to say that for other goods, the number of unskilled labor hours they're worth 10 down over time. There's an argument that this is bad, 
since price setters are more eager to adjust prices upward than downward, because if you're first to adjust your prices downward before others do, you're often relinquishing some portion of gains from trade within implicit agreements that take time to renegotiate. So, the argument goes, we instead all ought to have a unit of account that's worth 3% less every year, because that way prices will mostly need to adjust upward, and people will want to be the first in line rather than the last in line to adjust their prices to match new realities. And that way, prices will adjust more quickly and naturally than in the current arrangement where we have a seasonal repricing day, four times per year, where all the stuck prices go down at the same time if somebody was dragging their feet on minor price adjustments before then. How this all squares up with Cheliax's gold pieces concept, I have no idea. Wait, what? Uh, gold's just worth what people will pay you for it. The coins are just useful as a standard amount of gold so you don't have to test it for purity and weight, Gregoria offers after she's pretty sure she's not going to make any more sense of any of that. I suppose if I asked whether there's relatively more or less gold, compared to all the stuff being traded that isn't gold, every year, it would be very silly to expect an answer about that from a country where governance does not know its own annual budget and can't measure the value of all goods and services produced annually inside the country. Actually, no, I can ask that. Do prices over time usually go up a tad or down a tad? Asmodia thinks very quickly. Implausibly quickly, in fact. But that's fine so long as nobody including her notices. This direction, whatever it is, should be the same in Alter Cheliax and Real Cheliax, so far as Asmodia can currently tell. Flipping the answer is more of a risk than keeping it the same. These wizarding students who have had meaningful purchasing power for, like, two years, don't know. I heard headbands are getting cheaper, Meritzel says uncertainly. They go up over time, but not very much. You'd need to be looking at prices over a decade or something to see it. I could ask for my father's books. Well, if using gold means that all the prices tend to go up just a tad every season, instead of downward, don't be in a rush to change your use of gold as money without a lot of careful debate first. If everything else is the same, which it could very well not be, you might be doing better than civilization in at least that one exact way though I'm not sure how you'd get that result out of mining a metal, whose value is implicitly going down a bit every year under that equilibrium, which should induce less mining of it. But I am not expecting anyone in the classroom to know an answer to that. Actually, I bet it has to do with Asmodeus's church taking control of Cheliax, that probably brought in a moving to a new equilibrium surge of new investments from outside the country, and those were probably done in gold in which case maybe you'd need to get away from gold-based pricing in another decade, or prices might start going down again. Anyways. R. Asmodia has never heard of economics and doesn't know what an economist is, but she knows she needs one in this fortress right now. I have, I fear, digressed somewhat from the proper order in which to present things in theoretically pure ways. The invention of abstract units of caring is supposed to be a relatively advanced idea under the law, to which your hand gets forced later. Let's go down a different path. Suppose you've only got one of each kind of fruit that there is, but you've got, like, fifty different kinds. You can't cut any of them into pieces or they'll rot. Furthermore, each of your actions within the world can only swap one fruit for another, fruit at a time. You can give somebody a fruit without getting any back, I suppose. Everybody has an unbounded supply of the empty fruit. 
but you can't make a transaction promising anyone that you'll give them more fruit on a later round. Because thought experiments, that's why. I claim to you that in this world, there is no choice but to give up all hope of figuring out how many cherries a banana is worth, since all you can do is trade one whole banana for one whole cherry, and very few hungry people would trade a big fruit like a banana for a small one like a cherry. At least, there's no way to do it without being some kind of dirty cheater. But maybe somebody here is a dirty cheater? I don't know. If so, how do you cheat? There's a silence, but not the oh-no heresy silence. Just the silence of a hard problem. And then the delightful clarity of the problem snapping into focus as like a different kind of problem done a few days ago. You trade someone, a coin flip where you'll give them a banana if it comes up heads, for a cherry, whether it does or not. You'd need one of those Dath Ilani provable randomness creators to do it properly. A coin you can both see spinning works fine for that. You can use a random source of 0s and 1s to generate an arbitrary precision fraction uniformly between 0 and 1. Let's say that text is 0 and queen is 1 on a spinning coin. The first time you spin it, add 1, 2 to the total if it comes up queen. The next time you spin it, add 1, 4 to the total if it comes up queen. Third time, 1, 2 to the third power or 1, 8. Suppose you spin three times, and the results are queen, text, queen. The current running total is one-half plus zero-quarters, plus one-eighth equal sign five-eighths, or 0 0.625, can't get any lower than that, and can never go above six-eighths s, or 0 0.75, even if every future spin comes up queen. So if you were trying to generate a 60-100ths chance of something, you could stop at that point, and declare that the event hadn't happened. Uh, assuming there's no magic way to control how coin spins land. If there is, you'd have an arms race between that and detect magic, and whatever counters detect magic, etc. If the coin spins were important. I don't know of one, but if people were using coin flips for important things, it'd definitely be invented. I wouldn't be surprised if my god has a spell for that which is incredibly difficult to mess with, but I don't know if it'd be fourth circle or lower. It would be on theme with the truth spell and the pricing spell. Anyways, I now pose to you this devastating question. Who says that a one-two probability of an apple is worth exactly half as much as an apple? Maybe somebody is like, all this uncertainty about getting the apple makes me feel terrible. A one-half probability of an apple is really only worth to me a third as much as the certainty of an apple. And so... You can't use probabilistic trades to determine people's real trading ratios. Who says that the probabilities of things need to combine with their values by multiplication? How simple, how naive. Perhaps there is some more clever way to do things. By what law is it a regulation of our city that we must do things in exactly that way or else suffer some terrible misfortune? I mean, in this thought experiment, we can't cut apples and we can't make promises. I guess you can say that we also don't like uncertainty, but that'd be you adding that. If you were perfect, you just wouldn't care about uncertainty except for planning costs. Gods don't, I'm pretty sure. What I'm asking here is why there's a rule to combine probabilities with values by multiplication in the first place. Why not square the probabilities and multiply the values by that instead? 
There's the thing you said about how we could conspire against the conspiracies in worlds that have conspiracies, and I don't know if you literally mean there are uncountable worlds or if it's just a way of thinking, but getting an apple in half of worlds is half as good as getting an apple. There's countably infinite worlds, not uncountable ones. There's as many worlds as there are counting numbers, not as many as there are possible infinite sets of counting numbers. You can only get ratios between the reality weight of worlds if they're countable, so only those can be real. Any time a world is divided more finely than that, only the parts that... I can't actually say this in Taldane, sorry. And nice try, but we have ways to banish the anthropics out of the conversation. We can bet on a mathematical fact that neither of us know, and seems to have the right random properties like whether the remainder of 1,000, 1 divided by 17, is less than 6, say, which should give us a probability pretty close to 6 seventeenths. I could truth-spell myself and promise you that I hadn't secretly calculated the result in advance. There's no other worlds where that fact will be different, so why do I need to value that bet of an apple at 6 seventeenths? S the value of an apple. Asterisk. Reality fluid can be spread out over continuous distributions, but only chunks of those distributions large enough to integrate up to finite measures have people finding themselves inside. People themselves are not so finely divisible in regards to finding yourself to be one of them. If you tried to make a continuity of different people in order to have an uncountable population of distinct people, sufficiently close parts of that continuity that they couldn't tell themselves apart would add reality weight from the perspective of whether you find yourself to be one of them, and so again you'd find yourself as something whose reality weight sums up to a finite fraction of everything there is. This is why nobody ever finds themselves to be an entity with an actually infinite number of introspectively distinguishable distinct parts. Some dreadful misfortune will happen to you if you don't, involving people trading around probabilities of apples with you in an arrangement that leaves you with only a tiny chance of getting an apple. Or you passing up a trade series to increase your chance of getting an apple from some tiny amount to almost certainty would be the complete speck of the dreadful misfortune. And what would be an example case of an arrangement like that? Suppose I'd trade a 1-2 probability of an apple for 1-4 the value of an apple, and a 1-3 probability of an apple for 1-9 the value of an apple. What dread fate must now befall me? I pay a whole apple to you for 9 one third chances to win an apple. And? Just as I don't value a 1 third chance of winning an apple at 1 third of an apple's value, I don't value a 5-1-2 in 1-9-6-8-3 chance of ending up paying you 0 apples at around 1-38 that the value of paying you 0 apples. Why, I value it at around 9 slash 10th and it th the value of paying you zero apples with surety. As for all those other outcomes where I end up paying you 1, 2, or even 9 apples, I value all of those put together with the remaining 1 slash 10th of the weight that I put on things. When I weigh possibilities, if I haven't started out by already accepting that chances of things happening ought to be weighted proportional to their probability, then when I look at all the things that might probably happen, when you ask to buy four one-half chances of winning an apple from me, I don't have to value the one-sixteenth chance of paying you zero apples at one-sixteenth the value I put on that outcome. In other words, you're trying to convince me to accept the principle of weighting outcomes proportional to their probabilities, using an argument that only works on people who've already accepted that. It's frustrating, 
She can feel that Keltham is doing something very bad and punishable, and it should be possible to lawfully argue him out of it. But Pilar can't see the argument. Talking to the Elysians was less frustrating than this. She does not, of course, feel any anger at Keltham. It is clear that the fault lies within her for being unable to refute him. You've at least got to value two one-two chances of getting one apple the same as a one-quarter chance of getting no apples plus a one-half chance of getting one apple plus a one-quarter chance of getting two apples, Pilar states. Which means you've got to value one one-half chance of getting one apple the same as a one-quarter chance of getting no apples plus a one-quarter chance of getting two apples. Well, I accept you could mess with me if I didn't value two one-half chances of getting one apple, the same as one four of zero plus one two of one plus one four of two. But where was it said that I have to value two one-two chances of getting an apple, twice as much as I value one one-two chance of getting an apple? We can stipulate that I value two apples twice as much as one apple, in cherries. That was already said. But who says that packs of chances add up the same way? Does it work as an argument if I say that people who think like you do won't have a lot of kids, and eventually there won't be any of them left? No, for it has not been stipulated that I care. Also, we do tend in civilization to regard that as an invalid argument generally. If we look at the statistics and find that currently wizards are having fewer children, or for that matter masochists are having fewer children, it doesn't follow that Cheliacs should heritage-optimize wizards or masochists out of existence. Maybe the thing to do instead is subsidize them so that they go on existing. If you do trades like that, you'll go out of business. And I don't think civilization would intervene to stop you going out of business. With some tiny probability, I'll make a ton of money, though, if all the gambles I take pay off their maximum amounts. Maybe I just happen to weight that tiny probability by a huge amount in my calculations, much larger than I'd weight it if I was multiplying outcome values by probability weights the way you think I should. So, once again, you have not yet justified the principle of multiplying by probability, except by appealing to the principle of multiplying by probability. Now, if you could show that I was going to trade in a pattern that led me into strictly lower probabilities of getting an apple, or passing up strictly higher chances, that'd be another matter. I do accept the principle that I should always want more apples, and a greater probability of apples all my other resources being equal or undiminished. Nathesian advisory, it's getting close to dinner time, Keltham. You should choose between wrapping up or going into deliberate overtime. He has not forgotten what is awaiting him after dinner. Namely, Yaisa. He will not be delaying dinner today. All right, let's wrap up. The general section of law we are entering into is that which governs planning, paths through time, and its central principle is that of outcomes, or destinations with consistent values, to which we navigate paths through time governed by the law of probability, and the value to us in this moment of a probable outcome is that outcome's value times the probability we place on it. From a more advanced perspective, the law of utility, or the law of probable utility, is something that stands before the law of probability, even if the law of probability seems simpler. The reason to think about events and reality using chances out of 100 instead of scales from 1 to 12 is that the chances out of 100 are what we have to plug into our plans and not the scale from 1 to 12. Or at least, that's the perspective you'd take if you weren't coming at things from the angle of anthropics, but this we should not do until a whole lot later.
Cautions that I remember getting about this. First, the same basic caution as for probability. If you try to think about something using numbers, using this portion of law, and the conclusions that result make no sense, and you are not already very skilled in this art, throw away the numbers and start over. Do not follow the numbers off a cliff. It has ever happened in a case like that, that the conclusions were true, and the flaw was in your own ability to make sense of them. But in that case, the remedy is to first improve your intuitions until you can feel how the numbers make sense, not to go rush out and follow that advice before it has made sense to you. Second, though this part feels intuitively incredibly obvious to me, now that I'm no longer seven years old, I don't know if it actually is obvious. It wasn't when I was seven. You cannot, by any amount of cleverness, reason from the mathematics of probable utility, to conclusions about it being lawful or unlawful, to value particular things. Zonkuthon is lawful evil. He isn't making a math error by valuing endless suffering above happy people leading complicated, worthwhile lives. The law says that, for Zonkuthon to get what he values, Zonkuthon must either behave a certain way, or else end up with pointlessly flawed plans that stumble over themselves and don't lead to the endless suffering that Zonkuthon prefers. The law says nothing of Zonkuthon's first preference from which his plans begin. The students nod. That feels theologically right. Not that it's exactly easy to map to a particular theological teaching. And it was also said to me from the very beginning, for all the beauty of the law as law, and all the reasoning you might ever do about it as mathematics, the only reason to ever take that law upon yourself is if it is the correct law of obtaining what you desire. Not necessarily desire in a selfish sense, for this is civilization's teaching of which we speak. Good people desire good ends, and this law is their law too. The meaning of the caution is rather that if you think, at some point, that this law is telling you to do a thing, which will not lead best of all your available choices to whatever destination you seek, then most likely, vastly likely, you have made a mistake somewhere. You may be mistaken about the law, you might be correct in calculating what the law must say, and wrong in thinking that some other way is better, you may be correct about some derivations in mathematics, but be wrong about which mathematics you should be using. It is not likely the case that the law is telling you a worse way, and some other pattern is telling you a better one. But if, we are always also told, if some very clever person at some point demonstrated that the law is taught in civilization's lessons, did fail to be the best way of choosing in one part of reality, so as to make another part of reality conform to our desire, then we should at once discard that old law and seek another. That, after all, was presumably how that whole branch of mathematics was invented in the first place. In its final form, dealing with choices that are themselves mathematics, the law of decision is a touch complicated. There must have been a time when people did not know it, and used simpler math instead. If at that time they had thought to themselves that the law they held was the final and ultimate principle, and the definition in itself, of what should be done and not instead thought of there being an ultimate goal to find that mathematics, which best describes how choices in one place operate to constrain reality in another, they would have been unable to move on. But as far as Doth Elan knows, this is the law the gods use too? It's right no matter how smart you are or how vast your goals? 
If she wants to be an archdevil, she'd better go right for learning the law gods use. I'd guess. But if civilization got a portal to Galarian, and the gods said they had a different decision theory, everyone would be listening very attentively. Much more so than they listened to me when I was twelve, and had a better decision theory. What was your better decision theory when you were twelve? Meritzel says. Sort of embarrassing, and complicated, and really blatantly wrong once you understand what law is even supposed to look like normally, and it had a lot of terms in it you haven't learned yet. So... I'm going to delay explaining it at least until everybody knows what the correct theory was supposed to be, to avoid misleading you. That is the only reason I am delaying explaining it. It's not at all, because some part of my brain is worried that nobody in this room will want to have sex with me. If you know about my early attempts at decision theory... Dathilan gives people weird sexual hang-ups, Meritzel says. Still working out how much is Dathilan and how much is law and how much is Keltham. Surely any sensible feminine gender trope would take for granted that if you had a choice of men to have sex with, the first element determining your choice should be how good he is at decision theory. I'm just saying this because it's obviously true, of course, and not because I'm the best decision theorist on this planet. Shall we all to dinner? If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.